do I give bicarb? This can be challenging, confusing, controversial. These poor little rats had a pH drop to 7.0. Why is it important? The patient doesn't care what their norepinephrine dose is. They care whether they survive out of the hospital or not. What are the effects of phenacidosis? The onus is still on us as clinicians to use our brains. Welcome back, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy that you are joining us for yet another wonderful podcast. And it's such a pleasure for me to welcome back two amazing EM critical care folks that you've heard before, Dr. Gabe Wardy and Dr. Kit Tainter. They're joining me from the West Coast in San Diego. Gentlemen, before we dive into our educational topic this month, and I can't wait to learn from the two of you. We've got a bunch of new listeners here on the podcast, so let me just allow you a little bit of time to introduce yourself to those new listeners we have. All right, so well, first of all, thank you for having us here, Mike. My name is Gabriel Wardy. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Diego. I have a joint appointment between our Department of Emergency Medicine, as well as our Division of Pulmonary, critical care and sleep medicine. And my clinical practice is split largely 50-50 between our EDs and our ICUs. I'm Kit Tainter. I also work at the University of California, San Diego. I'm the Department of Anesthesiology. I work mostly in the surgical ICUs. I'm also the fellowship director for the Anesthesia Critical Care Fellowship, and we excitedly take emergency medicine grads and other specialties as well. And you two have an amazing program. So any of our listeners out there that are interested in pursuing fellowship training, I'd highly recommend taking a look at their site. It is fabulous. Now for this education, for this podcast topic, this is a little bit of a controversial topic, but it is one that our listeners have requested for a long time, gentlemen. And I can't thank you enough for tackling the bicarbonate question in critically ill patients. And this can be challenging, confusing, controversial for some. And I think it couldn't be more timely, more important. I will tell you, I was working last night in the emergency department. We had an undifferentiated critically ill patient come in. She was markedly acidotic. We're trying to sort through what was going on. One of her abnormalities was significant acute kidney injury with a marked acidosis. And as we involved our consultants, one of the consultant recommendations is get that bicarbonate infusion started. Now, that's just one of various scenarios where bicarbonate is used or recommended or even not recommended in critically ill states. And we're going to tackle some of that as we go through this discussion. But Gabe, you sent me a very important and I think a great review article that was published a short time ago in Critical Care dealing with using sodium bicarbonate and renal replacement therapy for critically ill patients with acute metabolic acidosis. But I'm going to turn things over to the two of you to guide us through this discussion because there's just so much to talk about. And I think you're going to drop a whole lot of pearls as well as some pitfalls in using bicarbonate therapy for these select acidotic conditions. So get us started. What are we really talking about here in terms of metabolic acidosis? How common is it? Give us a little bit of background as we then get into various conditions. Yeah. So I think the article that we chose is something that I think addresses this bicarbonate controversy. And specifically the one we found is management of acute metabolic acidosis in the ICU, sodium bicarbonate and renal replacement therapy, like you mentioned, published in critical care last year. 
the reason that I like this article is it gives a good historical background on where we've been when it comes to the management of metabolic acidosis with respects to bicarbonate. And that's what we're going to focus on today is going over different indications, contraindications, talk about the physiology a little bit, and then kind of come back with our recommendations that are based on the evidence. And with that, I think I'll turn it over to Kit to talk a little bit about the definition and epidemiology of metabolic acidoses as we see them both in the emergency department and in the ICU. Well, this article, as much as anything, I think is a springboard for discussion about the topic. It's certainly not the definitive answer to everything you should do about metabolic acidoses. It does raise some interesting points right off the bat and talks about the state of the union for acidoses. And unfortunately, as straightforward as it seems that this is chemistry and there should be right and wrong answers, that's really not the world that we're living in in 2022. There are even discrepancies about how we define metabolic acidosis. There are different approaches for how to think about it. We can talk about a few of those just in broad strokes. This article also provides a little bit of an overview of some of the epidemiology, some of the frequency of how often we deal with acid-based problems in the emergency department. It's interesting. They provide a few data. The first one they talk about the incidence of severe acidosis about 1.5% and moderate acidosis about 8.4%, which is an interesting number that we'll get to later. It seems to me in my practice that it's closer to 100% of patients that have some sort of acid-based disturbance. And so I think it's an underappreciated topic, as you mentioned, and something that we really can do better with a lot of times. Well, let me ask this. We're going to get into some conditions and perhaps, Gabe, you can lead us in and maybe even set the table with a case example. But in terms of the definition, just to make sure we're kind of all level set and talking the same language, what do you all use or perhaps what do these authors recommend in terms of numbers? Is there an exact cutoff with the pH, with the PCO2 if we're getting, well, I guess it would be ABG or VBG or the bicarbonate, say, on the serum chemistries? What numbers are we looking at? Well, everything is relative, and that's part of the challenge. As I was mentioning, the different review articles that these authors allude to even use slightly different criteria. Generally, they're talking about a pH that's low, below 7.3 or so. They're talking about mostly metabolic acidoses, and so that essentially is a low bicarb, and that number in some of these studies was less than 20. I do want to take a step back and point out that it's important, I think, to ignore the pH sometimes, that there can certainly be significant acidotic conditions that are offset by some other condition like a respiratory alkalosis or another metabolic alkalosis. And so I think that fixating on the pH too much can be misleading and can lead people to miss important disorders. So when I'm thinking about metabolic acidosis, I think more about the serum bicarbonate level and think about it really relative to what it should be. So somebody that comes in, for example, with a chronic respiratory acidosis and they've compensated by having an elevation in their bicarb over time so that they live around 30 and now it's 24, well, that's a normal number that doesn't show any flags in our EMR but that's not normal for what that patient lives at. 
And so again, that just makes everything a little bit more muddied, but I think it's important to sort of highlight that idea that we need to pay attention to multiple things and it's hard to use just one cutoff. What I would add to that is to me, learning this, what made it very confusing was whenever you go through, there's different models that people use. And, you know, if you want to be the most scientific, if you love physical chemistry, you'll talk about the Stewart model that I have been perplexed by through years and years and years and have failed to really kind of use this in my own clinical practice. And I usually fall much more on using either the Henderson-Hasselbach method, where we're effectively looking at an anion gap to see the presence of that and the absence of an acidosis. Something else that I appreciate quite a bit is on any kind of blood gas is looking at a patient's base excess. And I think the base excess gives you very quick information about what's going on with the patient. And just as a quick review, right, with this, we are effectively taking out any respiratory component and we're effectively seeing how much acid or base we need to neutralize the pH of a solution here. So it's something that I think gives you a lot of information very, very quickly that can kind of help you guide, hey, is there a metabolic acidosis? Is there a metabolic alkalosis? Or is there effectively, you know, no problem that's going on here? But again, these are problems that have been gone through in medical school, residency, and even after people have been out for quite some time. And I think most people tend to gravitate towards ones that make the most sense for them. To actually go the other direction. And I think in the more broad strokes, as I was mentioning, I think the concept of the Stewart approach, I certainly don't understand all of it, but that philosophy tends to make a little bit of sense to me that pH is determined by a balance between the ions in the milieu. The other thing that makes sense to that is that usually we're talking about bicarbonate and other ions in concentrations of millimolar per liter. And when you think about pH, if you remember, that's 10 to the minus seventh or 10 to the minus 7.4 protons. And so we're orders of magnitude different in the concentration of these ions. So it's not like a proton comes off of every bicarb ion. And when I sort of made that realization, I realized that it wasn't quite as simple as what we might be taught in the first couple of years of medical school sometimes. I use the word milieu, and that's sort of how it works in my mind, is that there's this environment, and the pH becomes sort of a dependent variable from that. Well, you've already given us some really important pearls to think about with respect to definition. And I think there could be a tendency when we're quickly seeing patients, perhaps we get a VBG, we look at the pH and say, oh, well, they're not really acidotic, but that's actually not the whole story. And we really need to pay greater attention to things that you mentioned with the serum bicarbonate, the base excess. Well, let me move on a little bit through what the article covers. And in terms of just metabolic acidosis, that seems like a fairly big bucket. Like what are some of those things or the types of things that you consider under that larger umbrella of a metabolic acidosis? Yeah. So that's a fantastic question. And I think for me, at least the good classification of this helps not only guide treatment, but it also gives you a rough assessment of, you know, this patient's mortality risk. So the first one I think that I always think about is diabetic ketoacidosis it's so common that we see in our emergency departments. And typically these patients do quite well. I don't think we need to jump through the biochemistry of why specifically this happens, but it's an extremely common one. And the net result is these are usually relatively straightforward in their management. And I don't think there's a ton of controversies here. The next one we see that I think gets me a little bit more worried is when we see a patient that has a bad lactic acidosis. 
And I know you've spoken on lactate in the past. We've published on lactate. It's something that I think continues to get the interest of providers. And with this, there's so many reasons why a patient might develop a lactic acidosis. We all think about sepsis given the current SEP1 core measure, but we can also see it in other conditions like heart failure, cardiogenic shock, hypovolemic shock, bad trauma patients. And it gives you a lot of good information, not only from a resuscitation standpoint, but also when you see that lactate being elevated, one of the things that we're going to talk about is how you can approach that from, is there a use of bicarbonate for these patients? And I think that's a very, very important pearl that we'll start kind of digging into in a little bit. The other thing that I like to classify these patients as is we've talked about ones that have a gap acidosis, that being DKA and lactate. Oftentimes, though, you're approached with a non-gap acidosis in the emergency department, and people don't get as excited about these for multiple reasons. I think partly because the mortality of these patients is not going to be as high as someone you see that has a lactic acidosis. But there's any number of reasons why a patient will develop a non-gap acidosis. And in these patients, typically what we're seeing is that they are losing bicarbonate through one or another mechanism. Perhaps the most common one is going to be a patient that has bad diarrhea. All the bicarbonate is going out of their body through their GI tract. Patients with renal tubular acidosis that I know is not a popular thing to think about in the ED, but certainly in the ICU, we do think about it quite a bit. A lot of these patients are also losing bicarbonate. But there's any number of mnemonics that people use to kind of remind themselves of the different kinds of non-gap acidoses. The one I liked I put here is fused cars. That really stands for any kind of fistula. If there's any kind of ureterogastric conduit, normal saline administration that I know you're quite passionate about, that I share that strong dislike of, any number of endocrine situations, particularly patients with hyperpyrothyroidism, diarrhea, the administration of a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, the administration of ammonium chloride, a renal tubular acidosis, and spironolactone. So those are all potential causes for someone that comes in with a metabolic acidosis in the absence of an anion gap. Outstanding. Well, let me actually take a little bit of a step back. You know, why is this important? We have patients that come in, they are sick. Why is it important that we really have a heightened awareness about their metabolic acidosis, their acid base status? I mean, does it really have that much importance or adverse effect in our critically ill patients? What are the effects of an acidosis? I think it's most helpful to think about acidosis as a symptom rather than really the primary problem. And picking up on symptoms can help us identify problems that need to be fixed. Now, certainly acidemia can get to the point that it causes problems on its own, but usually it's more the scenario where something like a lactic acidosis has developed because there's a source of ischemia or excessive lactate production or decreased clearance. And that's the root of the problem that really needs to be addressed to help improve the patient's life. One thing I like about this article is they actually go through the evidence of where we get these mantras. And one thing that I was always taught, right, is that a bad metabolic acidosis will cause your patient to have hemodynamic instability and cardiac arrest. And I think we've all seen this, right? You have a patient that has a profound lactic acidosis, you start resuscitating them, and they just don't make it, they arrest, and it's extremely challenging. But what this article does is they actually go through and they bring up the literature where we start to get these assumptions that a metabolic acidosis leads to hemodynamic instability. And 
they also point out that we don't have any direct causal evidence in humans. What we've seen is some old, old animal studies and a lot of studies showing correlation, but nothing truly showing causation in humans. And just an example of some of the ones that we've used to base this assumption that a bad metabolic acidosis causes hemodynamic instability. You have to go back to the 1960s, looking at dog studies where the investigators would inject either hydrochloric acid or lactic acid into dogs, drop their pH to less than seven and kind of see what exactly happened hemodynamically. There's also some other ones when we talk about our pressors not working in a patient that has a severe metabolic acidosis. Perhaps the best evidence we have for that in any kind of potentially causal evidence comes from rat studies, where again, these poor little rats had a pH drop to 7.0 using either hydrochloric acid or lactic acid and showing that there's an increase in nitric oxide at that point, causing some hypotension and less response to vasoactive medications at that point. But we don't have any studies in human very specifically kind of looking at that, showing that a bad metabolic acidosis causes cardiovascular collapse. Now, again, just because we don't have the evidence, it doesn't mean that it's not there. But I think it's very interesting when you start to look at the evidence, you know, a lot of these assumptions have been made from. That said, I'm sure we all have the anecdotal experience of pushing an amp of bicarb and seeing the blood pressure go up. And it's very hard to dissociate from that because it's a real phenomenon. I mean, we all learn in elementary school that you mix baking soda with vinegar and you're neutralizing an acid with a base. And I'm not disputing that that's the case, but it's not quite that simple in the end. You don't want to create plaster of Paris volcanoes inside of humans for one thing. But I think this leads into the question that probably most of the listeners are really interested in. When do I give bicarb? Which cases of acidosis or severity or types, when am I supposed to be giving the bicarb if it's not all the time? And I will say it's probably not all the time. And it's probably not none of the time. I think the first step in answering this question for me is to determine if we're dealing with an anion gap acidosis or a non-anion gap acidosis. Anion gap acidosis, as we all know, is that some ion is there that's not supposed to be there and it's influencing the pH. So commonly that might be lactate, it might be beta-hydroxybutyrate, it might be some metabolite of something that you weren't supposed to eat. But the administration of sodium bicarbonate doesn't get rid of that ion. And so it's not really fixing the root of the problem. If you can address the cause of the lactate accumulation, that addresses the underlying problem. And that's really where we want to focus our attention. Now, in contrast, non-anion gap acidoses, which are sometimes called hyperchloremic or, you know, some other sort of term that I think can be misleading. I don't like hyperchloremic acidosis because you can have a hyperchloremic acidosis with a low chloride, for example, if you're hyponatremic enough. So I think the better catch-all term is a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Now that is essentially a deficiency in bicarbonate in the serum. And so while you still should and can address underlying causes much of the time, supplementing the bicarbonate in the serum makes sense in that scenario. So I think thinking about these individual types of acidosis, obviously we can't list all of them here. We'd be here all day, but differentiating into non-anion gap and anion gap acidosis, I think are a first step in determining what's the best way to treat them. 
And I think what I would just add on to that, right, is the whole reason we start talking about giving someone bicarbonate, right, is that we are making the assumption that by administering bicarbonate will basically increase a strong ion difference, increase our bicarbonate, the pH goes up and thus we'll see improved cardiac function. And the first question that I always ask people is, well, what's the route of administration you want for this? And typically what we see is there's a few ways that people administer bicarbonate. One way is through a push of sodium bicarbonate, which typically comes in the bicarbonate there that you're giving is going to be in 10 mLs of saline. It's going to be 50 milliequivalents per liter sodium, 50 milliequivalents per liter of bicarbonate. This is an extremely, extremely hypertonic solution. And that's typically what I've seen people like to give it in cardiac arrest or if they're extremely worried about patients. The other approach that's getting a lot more attention right now with a recent randomized trial has to do with the administration of bicarbonate as a resuscitation fluid. And in this, typically what we see is going to be three amps of bicarb that is put in either a liter of sterile water or a liter of dextrose, D5. And with this, you'll get 150 milliequivalents per liter of sodium and 150 milliequivalent per liter of bicarbonate that then can be used for resuscitation. And this is, again, jumping back to the evidence that we have on these, right? When it comes to looking to see how does a push of bicarb actually influence pH, serum bicarbonate, base excess, sodium, and PCO2 after a push? Well, we know transiently we're going to see this, and there's systematic reviews that have looked at this, but we don't see great evidence that this is really something that's going to persist after the push has been completed more than, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. So it makes you kind of think about that. And with that, I think it really is important to highlight the randomized trials that we've had when it comes to the administration of sodium bicarbonate. And to me, this was a little bit shocking because I assumed that we'd have way more to help guide our therapy since so many people use this. And in this article, they highlight that there's really two that have been put out there. The first one is from 2005. It was a pilot trial looking at 18 patients to get either sodium bicarbonate or a analog of this called trishydroxymethylaminomethane, more commonly called THAM in patients with a mild metabolic acidosis. And they really saw no difference in any kind of improvement of the metabolic acidosis in either group. And THAM has since kind of gone off. It's extremely expensive. Most places don't carry it. But the one that I think is much more interesting and gives us actually, you know, kind of a glimmer on which patients might benefit from this was called the BICAR ICU trial. And this was published in 2018 in France through multiple ICUs there. And what they wanted to do was to see if the administration of a sodium bicarbonate infusion, and they used a 4.2%, a little bit different than what we typically use in the United States for patients in the ICU that had a bad metabolic acidosis that they defined as a pH less than 7.2 to see if there was a difference really as their primary outcome being either death or renal replacement therapy at seven days. And what was interesting here is they didn't see a mortality benefit or a need for renal replacement therapy overall, but for patients that had not only a severe metabolic acidosis, but also an acute kidney injury, they did see there was actually a mortality benefit and less need for renal replacement therapy. So I think this is a little bit of the evidence that helps us at least make more informed decisions here. One of the really unfortunate confounding parts of that when they looked at the outcome of dialysis, renal replacement therapy, as we all know that acidosis and acidemia can be one of the decision-making factors 
with deciding whether to use renal replacement therapy in somebody. And so I think it's difficult to separate that out as an independent outcome. All right. Well, let's dive into specific conditions. I think, Gabe, you had mentioned them when we talked about common types of metabolic acidosis. The two of you have given us so much already. Let's get some specific scenarios. And prior to us recording, Gabe, you said that you were sent a, a great case by one of your residents. I don't know if you want to lead into that as we talk about the various conditions here or just move into them. I don't think this is an uncommon case. And despite the fact that this happened in San Diego, I think it's generalizable to almost any emergency department or ICU across the United States. The case that my residents wanted to talk about, though, was a 25-year-old male, history of type 1 diabetes, found down in his hotel room, covered in stool, shows up to the emergency department, hypothermic to 84 degrees Fahrenheit, blood pressure 60 over 30, extremely, extremely altered. His glucose is reading high and they send off a VBG and the pH is 7.0 with a profound base excess. And the question that they had was, how the heck should I resuscitate this patient? Should I intubate them immediately? And what should I be worried about if I place this patient on a mechanical ventilator? And it turned out that this was actually a fascinating case because not only did the patient have severe diabetic ketoacidosis, but they also had a non-GAP acidosis from a lot of diarrhea. And I think what we want to do is at least go through, you know, these specific situations to kind of see, hey, how can you best spin this to think about the appropriate use of bicarbonate? You mentioned base excess again. I think we should help highlight for the listeners what that means. I think of base excess or base deficit, which are analogous base deficits, just a negative base excess, essentially, which I think is what you were describing in this case, that the patient had a base deficit as the net metabolic effect in the patient. And it's a shortcut. If you don't understand base excess, I think you can go through a pretty successful career, never understanding base excess, as long as you're looking at the right information. It can be a helpful shortcut to help you identify when there is a significant derangement. But again, this is something that if you have two offsetting derangements that are pretty significant, you can have a pretty sick patient who doesn't have much of a base deficit. Great points. Great points. Well, let me ask then, since this case pertains to DKA, do I give bicarbonate? Should I do that? You guys tell me. So this is another area, this becoming a theme, where we don't have a ton of great evidence for what we should do. We do have some rationale. There are some data, almost all retrospective, showing that really administration of bicarbonate doesn't seem to change outcomes in an important way in diabetic ketoacidosis. There are some physiologic rationale. It does seem that insulin resistance decreases with improvement in pH, so your insulin may work better if the pH is more normal and less acidotic. However, we also know that that causes shifts in other ions like calcium and potassium, importantly. So those may drop and those may offset some of the benefit of improved function of insulin. Overall, my practice is not to supplement bicarb in strictly ketoacidotic conditions. So I would agree with Kit here, you know, and this is where it's tough because we don't have any good randomized trials, partly because patients that have DKA and have a pH of less than 6.9 logistically, particularly in the United States, that would be almost impossible to do. 
But I would agree, right? It really depends on kind of what you're doing. I think the one exception I might say is if the patient does require tracheal intubation and I'm worried in that immediate phase when I'm trying to kind of bump up their pH momentarily until I can place them on a ventilator to make sure there's no peri-intubation arrest. That might be the one time that I think it might make some sense. But with that exception, again, we have some guidelines that all acknowledge we don't have great evidence for it. Mike, what's your practice on this, actually? This is kind of one of the, the fun questions about this is how you tackle these people. Yeah, I think for DKA, I'm not a fan of bicarbonate. So uh, I think I align with the two of you. Are there hard and fast rules, numbers? I think that as we all continue to practice medicine for longer and longer, we realize that there are very few conditions that are just a hard threshold and that taking the patient into account is always what we do. But I think pretty much I can say nearly all DKA patients, I'm not rushing to administer bicarbonate. Now, what's interesting with the case that you presented, Gabe, was that there was also a non-anion gap acidosis. And so the presence of DKA doesn't exclude the presence of other acidotic processes. And I think it does make sense to supplement some bicarb in that scenario. So for the patient that you described who is here with DKA, I think it may make sense to supplement some of the bicarb. At least then they're only fighting one of those two battles especially if, like you said, their minute ventilation is as high as it can be and they still can't get their pH to be normal, they don't have much room to tolerate apnea. If they're apneic for 30 seconds, that may drop their pH low enough that their hemodynamics really change in a significant way. So while you're resuscitating, of course, we all know that almost anybody who comes in with DKA is pretty hypovolemic as well from a lot of osmotic diuresis plus whatever else. And so while we're using volume resuscitation, especially if there's another process going on that might benefit from bicarbonate, I might use bicarbonate as the resuscitation fluid, that isotonic bicarbonate that you're talking about, not the hypertonic amps necessarily. You can give a lot of sodium and a lot of bicarbonate in an amp in a very small volume. But if we're trying to resuscitate their volume, then that doesn't make sense necessarily to use that hyper-concentrated formula. I think that's a great point, Kit, in terms of the case that Gabe presented with the non-anion gap and getting back to something that the two of you talked about just for rationale and, well, thinking about bicarbonate and dividing the patient's conditions and whether it be an anion gap or a non-anion gap acidosis. I think that's a smart way to approach it. Or both. Well, let me transition. We've got DKA, emergency physicians see that quite a bit, but I think probably maybe even both in the ICU and the ED, the most common etiology for an anion gap metabolic acidosis tends to be a lactic acidosis. And the traditional teaching is we always treat the underlying condition, but is there any role or rationale for using bicarbonate, say in extreme of circumstances, really sick patients, when we're dealing with a lactic acidosis? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. And I think here, at least we have a good amount of basic science data to kind of guide us. 
The short answer is I don't think there's really a role for bicarbonate in patients that have a bad lactic acidosis unless there's another process going on where they're losing bicarbonate. And in fact, it's actually kind of interesting when you start to dive into this and actually take a look at, you know, some studies that people have done to see does sodium bicarbonate actually improve things that we care about, like a patient's cardiac output or their blood pressure. And there's some older studies in the 1990s, back when everyone had a Swan-Gans catheter in the intensive care unit, where they actually took a look to see in patients that had bad lactic acidosis that were intubated, had swans in, that would randomize them to get either a push of sodium bicarbonate or a push of normal saline, and then the other group would get the opposite, to see if there was any impact on the hemodynamic profile of these patients. And the two studies that this paper identified, they actually showed it didn't matter if you're pushing sodium bicarbonate or normal saline in terms of any change in hemodynamics that patients would have. So I think it's a fallacy that we like to jump to, right? We want to do something. We want to push bicarb in these patients because we feel that if we transiently improve their pH, that we might improve their hemodynamics, but that's not really going to do that. And in fact, like you said earlier, treating the underlying cause and appropriate volume resuscitation with your crystalloid, hopefully lactated ringers, probably the much more appropriate way to go here. Yeah, if you want to read more about lactic acidosis, I'd refer you to uh, Wardy and Tainter last year in Annals of Emergency Medicine. They wrote a really good review article about this. That was an outstanding article that I actually print up quite frequently in the ED and hand to folks as we have that we talk about that. And I think a podcast that we did on that. So lots of resources on an outstanding article that two of you did. Just to reiterate what Gabe was saying, the data that we have don't really support the use of bicarb supplementation and lactic acidosis. The dogma, as you mentioned, is to treat the underlying cause. And this is one of the dogma that I probably actually agree with. So what we know is you can raise the serum bicarb level and you can make the pH higher. It doesn't seem to translate to better patient outcomes. The patient doesn't care what their norepinephrine dose is. They care whether they survive out of the hospital or not. The biggest harm I can see with bicarb supplementation in this scenario is that it may mask the severity of the condition, especially if you're just looking at base excess and you're resuscitating toward a base deficit, which I'd sometimes see that's a bit of an oversimplification. And if you give amps of bicarb, you're going to decrease the base deficit. And you may feel like you're doing a better job patting yourself on the back when you haven't really fixed the underlying problem and the ischemia is still occurring or the liver failure or whatever is driving the acidosis. And so if you're not paying attention, the bicarb supplementation has the potential to worsen your patient's outcome in that way. Another example of this that I like to use is when you're using a large volume of blood resuscitation, blood, which of course is anticoagulated with citrate, which gets metabolized into bicarb. If you give enough of it, then it's like giving a bunch of bicarb supplementation. And again, this can mask a significant acidosis by driving up the serum bicarb. Great, great points. Well, let me ask about one other condition here, and then we'll wrap up and get your final thoughts and recommendations. And that is cardiac arrest. So whether we are in the ED with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, upstairs, on the floor, or even in the ICU with in-hospital cardiac arrests, I've certainly come across many providers that will not terminate a code without giving bicarbonate. 
So I've heard many say, well, the patient's going to die, so why not give bicarbonate and calcium? And I wanted to get your thoughts on that scenario. Should we be taking that approach or not? Yeah, like, so this is always going to be controversial. As you know, everyone thinks that they know how to run codes better than everyone else. Everyone has their go-to medications for this. And personally, I don't use sodium bicarbonate and cardiac arrest with a few situations that we'll talk about. But again, going back to the rationale for this, right? A lot of times these patients are going to have a profound metabolic acidosis that's going on. And the rationale, right, is if you push some bicarb, like we've been talking about this entire talk, right? You'll increase your pH, you'll increase your bicarbonate. You might get a chance of getting return to spontaneous circulation. The AHA first put this in their guidelines in 1967, but following any good evidence that this actually had any improvement in patient-centered outcomes, they removed it from their guidelines in 2010. And I applaud them for doing this because we don't have any randomized trials that show benefit. We have some small observational studies that are all over the place. If you like it, you'll point to those. If you don't like it, you point to them. But I think overall, it probably increases the cognitive burden when you should be focusing on doing good CPR. Now, that being said, there's two situations when I do think it makes sense. One is if you have cardiac arrest from a sodium channel blockade, I think that's accepted, right? Push your bicarb then, right? Bump up your sodium potentially, help make sure that that heart can squeeze by getting extra sodium in there, potentially decrease the amount of available drug that the patient has. The also one is if it's suspected hyperkalemic arrest, the patient has a big fistula, they're known dialysis, et cetera. I think it makes sense in that situation, but for all practical purposes in other patients, I don't push it. I focus much more on doing high quality CPR. I will jump in and mention the idea that pushing hypertonic amps of sodium bicarbonate may actually increase the extracellular shift of potassium transiently. So when you are thinking about hyperkalemia, the theoretical benefit of supplementing the bicarb, you have to be careful not to offset that with giving really hypertonic pushes of amps of bicarb. So some of the trials that you mentioned actually showed worsened neurologic outcome and survival. So even if you get improved rates of return of spontaneous circulation, if the patient doesn't survive in a meaningful way, that's not much of a benefit. And some might argue that that's even a harm, that you're using a lot of resources to prolong the clinical scenario for the patient, maybe even cause additional suffering without a benefit in the long run. So it's not an entirely benign proposition to push amps of bicarb during a code. You know, another thing to keep in mind, there may be some benefit to providers. If they feel like we've really done everything and they feel better about their resuscitation because they gave amps of bicarb, that may be a benefit that we shouldn't ignore entirely. However, we don't wanna do things like that at the expense of the patient. We shouldn't put our own interests ahead of the patient's interests. So I think we should be thoughtful about when we're using bicarb, I definitely don't indiscriminately give amps of bicarb during every code. I do think there are scenarios when it might be helpful for the patient, some of which you described. And so I think that the onus is still on us as clinicians to use our brains. If it was simple enough that we can use an algorithm, then we would all be out of work. Well said. And I think with that, why don't we wind down this exceedingly informative, exceedingly helpful conversation and go to each of you for some final wrap-up points, take-home points, and then we will close out our podcast. Yes, I think what I would take away from this, if I was listening, 
is first of all, make sure you understand the type of metabolic acidosis that you're dealing with. If it's an anion gap acidosis, really ask yourself, what's the benefit of giving bicarb for that patient, right? And for me, at least, unless they have a bad kidney injury and a bad metabolic acidosis, I typically shy away from it. If it's a non-gap acidosis from someone that has diarrhea, like the case that I gave you, which our residents were thinking about, right? Then it probably makes sense. And then I typically administer it as a resuscitation fluid, particularly in the emergency department by putting three amps of bicarb and a liter of sterile water or D5. But ultimately think about the patient you're taking care of. And you're not just trying to fix the numbers. You're trying to address the underlying physiology of what's going on with them. I think my takeaway message is, first of all, we don't understand everything. There are limitations of what we know and recognizing that I think is important. You're not always going to do one thing in every scenario or never do something in another. I think it's important to identify anion gap versus non-anion gap and trying to treat the underlying problem at hand. Base excess is a shortcut. And when you're using shortcuts, you should understand the limitations of that. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, any intervention you do or decision that you make has a potential for harm and a potential for benefit. And in individual scenarios, we need to balance those. Well, that is a perfect way to end this conversation. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for joining us again here on CCPEM. For those of you that have any questions, please once again, shoot us an email through our website. There will be a handout that accompanies this podcast. And this has been so informative. In fact, if you need CME, don't forget that we do have the CME portion available here for CCPEM. Gentlemen, Happy New Year. I didn't start off the year. This is early in January. I did want to express my thanks as well as well wishes and a very happy new year. I'm looking forward to 2022 being a little bit better than 2021. I know that we're off to a little bit of a rough start here and, and we're still climbing the Omicron mountain, but my hope is that we have almost reached the peak and will be rapidly descending soon. But my thanks for joining us here on CCPEM. Perfect. Thank thanks, you. Mike. Take care and we will talk to you on our next podcast.